8. Ipment of contraband already referred to, or a distinct invasion of the sovereign rights of the nation whose ships, trade, or commerce is interfered with, the government of the United States Island of course, not oblivious to the great changes which have occurred in the conditions and means of naval warfare since the rules hitherto governing legal blockade were formulated, it might be ready to admit that the old form of close blockade, with its cordon of ships in the immediate offing of the blockaded ports, is no longer practicable in the face of an enemy possessing the means and opportunity to make an effective defense by the use of submarines, mines, and aircraft, but it can hardly be maintained that, whatever form of effective blockade may be made use of, it is impossible to conform at least to the spirit and principles of the established rules of war. If the necessities of the case should seem to render it imperative that the cordon of blockading vessels be extended across the approaches to any neighboring neutral port or country, it would seem clear that it would still be easily practicable to comply with the well-recognized and reasonable prohibition of international law against the blockading of neutral ports, by according free admission and exit to all lawful traffic with neutral ports through the blockading cordon. This traffic would, of course, include all outward-bound traffic from the neutral country and all inward-bound traffic to the neutral country, except contraband in transit to the enemy. Such procedure need not conflict in any respect with the rights of the belligerent maintaining the blockade, since the right would remain with the blockading vessels to visit and search all ships either entering or leaving the neutral territory which they were in fact, but not of right, investing. The Government of the United States notes that in the order in council His Majesty's Government give as their reason for entering upon a course of action, which they are aware is without precedent in modern warfare the necessity they conceive themselves to have been placed under to retaliate upon their enemies for measures of a similar nature, which the latter had announced it their intention to adopt, and which they have to some extent adopted, but the government of the United States, recalling the principles upon which His Majesty's government have hitherto been scrupulous to act, interprets this as merely a reason for certain extraordinary activities on the part of His Majesty's naval forces and not as an excuse for or prelude to any unlawful action. If the course pursued by the present enemies of Great Britain should prove to be in fact tainted by illegality and disregard of the principles of war sanctioned by enlightened nations, it cannot be supposed, and this government does not for a moment suppose, that His Majesty's government would wish the same taint to attach to their own actions or would cite such illegal acts as in any sense or degree a justification for similar practices on their part in so far as they affect neutral rights. It is thus that the government of the United States interprets the language of the note of His Majesty's Principal Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, which accompanies the copy of the order in council, which was handed to the Ambassador of the United States by the government in London and by him transmitted to Washington. This government notes with gratification that wide discretion is afforded to the prize court in dealing with the trade of neutrals in such a manner as may in the circumstances be deemed just and that full provision is made to facilitate claims by persons interested in any goods placed in the custody of the marshal of the prize court under the order, that the effect of the order in council is to confer certain powers upon the executive officers of His Majesty's government, and that the extent to which these powers will be actually exercised and the degree of severity with which the measure of blockade authorized will be put into operation are matters which will depend on the administrative orders issued by the government and the decisions of the authorities especially charged with the duty of dealing with individual ships and cargoes, according to the merits of each case. 
this government further notes with equal satisfaction the declaration of the British government that, the instructions to be issued by His Majesty's government to the fleet and to the customs officials and executive committees concerned will impress upon them the duty of acting with the utmost dispatch consistent with the object in view, and of showing in every case such consideration for neutrals as may be compatible with that object, which is succinctly stated to establish a blockade to prevent vessels from carrying goods for or coming from Germany. In view of these assurances formally given to this government, it is confidently expected that the extensive powers conferred by the order in council on the executive officers of the Crown will be restricted by orders issued by the government, directing the exercise of their discretionary powers in such a manner as to modify in practical application those provisions of the order in council, which, if strictly enforced, would violate neutral rights and interrupt legitimate trade, relying on the faithful performance of these voluntary assurances by His Majesty's government. The United States takes it for granted that the approach of American merchantmen to neutral ports situated upon the long line of coast affected by the order in council will not be interfered with when it is known that they do not carry goods which are contraband of war or goods destined to or proceeding from ports within the belligerent territory affected. The government of the United States assumes with the greater confidence that His Majesty's government will thus adjust their practice to the recognized rules of international law because it is manifest that the British government have adopted an extraordinary method of stopping cargoes destined for or coming from the enemy's territory, which, owing to the existence of unusual conditions in modern warfare at sea, it will be difficult to restrict to the limits which have been heretofore required by the law of nations though the area of operations is confined to European waters, including the Mediterranean. So great an area of the high seas is covered and the coordinate ships is so distant from the territory affected that neutral vessels must necessarily pass through the blockading force in order to reach important neutral ports which Great Britain as a belligerent has not the legal right to blockade and which, therefore, it is presumed she has no intention of claiming to blockade. The Scandinavian and Danish ports, for example, are open to American trade, they are also free, so far as the actual enforcement of the order in council is concerned, to carry on trade with German Baltic ports, although it is an essential element of blockade that it bear with equal severity upon all neutrals. This government, therefore, infers that the commanders of His Majesty's ships of war, engaged in maintaining the so-called blockade, will be instructed to avoid an enforcement of the proposed measures of non-intercourse in such a way as to impose restrictions upon neutral trade more burdensome than those which have been regarded as inevitable. When the ports of a belligerent are actually blockaded by the ships of its enemy, the possibilities of serious interruption of American trade under the order in council are so many, and the methods proposed are so unusual, and seem liable to constitute so great an impediment and embarrassment to neutral commerce that the government of the United States, if the order in council is strictly enforced, apprehends many interferences with its legitimate trade which will impose upon His Majesty's government heavy responsibilities for acts of the British authorities clearly subversive of the rights of neutral nations on the high seas. It island therefore, expected that the Majesty's government, having considered these possibilities, will take the steps necessary to avoid them, and, in the event that they should unhappily occur, will be prepared to make full reparation for every act which, under the rules of international law, constitutes a violation of neutral rights, as stated in its communication of October 22, 1914.
This government will insist that the rights and duties of the United States and its citizens in the present war be defined by the existing rules of international law and the treaties of the United States irrespective of the provisions of the Declaration of London, and that this government reserves to itself the right to enter a protest or demand in each case, in which those rights and duties so defined are violated or their free exercise interfered with by the authorities of the British government. In conclusion you will reiterate to His Majesty's government that the statement of the view of the government of the United States is made in the most friendly spirit, and in accordance with the uniform candor which has characterized the relations of the two governments in the past, and which has been in large measure the foundation of the peace and enmity existing between the two nationals without interruption for a century. Brian. Germany's Conditions of Peace The first authoritative German presentation of the idea by Drive Bernhard Bernberg late German colonial secretary of state that Germany would be willing to make peace on the basis of a free neutral sea, guaranteed by the powers, was indicated in a letter written by Dr. Bernhard Bernberg, ex-colonial secretary of Germany, and read at a pro-German mass meeting held in Portland, me, on April 17, 1915, after an explanatory note Dr. Bernberg divided into numbered clauses his letter, as follows. 1. Whatever peace is concluded should be of a permanent nature, no perfunctory patching up should be permitted, the horror of all the civilized nations of the old world slaughtering one another, everyone convinced of the perfect righteousness of their own cause or recurrence, if it could not be avoided absolutely, should be made most remote, so as to take the weight from our minds that all this young blood of the best manhood of Europe might be spilled in vain. To for this purpose it must be borne in mind that the world has changed considerably since the last big conflagration, and that all the countries striving for humanity and civilization are now one big family, with interests, spiritual as well as commercial, interlocking to a degree that no disturbance of any part of the civilized globe can exist without seriously affecting the rest. A disturbance in one quarter must make quite innocent bystanders involuntary victims to the serious detriment of spiritual peace and commercial pursuits. The great highway on which thoughts and things travel are the high seas. I can with full authority disclaim any ambition by my country as to a world dominion. She is much too modest, on the one hand, and too experienced, on the other hand, not to know that such a state will never be tolerated by the rest. Events have shown that world dominion can only be practiced by dominion of the high seas. The aim of Germany is to have the seas as well as the narrows, kept permanently open for the free use of all nations in times of war as well as in times of peace. The sea is nobody's property and must be free to everybody. The seas are the lungs from which humanity draws a fresh breath of enterprise, and they must not be stopped up. I personally, would go so far as to neutralize all the seas and narrows permanently by a common and effective agreement guaranteed by all the powers so that any infringement on that score would meet with the most severe punishment that can be meted out to any transgressor. 3. A free sea is useless except combined with the freedom of cable and mail communications with all countries, whether belligerent or not. I should like to see all the cables jointly owned by the interested nations and a world mail system oversee established by common consent. But, more than this, an open sea demands an open policy. This means that, while every nation must have the right, for commercial and fiscal purposes, to impose whatever duties it thinks fit. These duties must be equal for all exports and imports for whatever destination and from whatever source. It would be tantamount to a world empire. In fact, if a country owning a large part of the globe could make discriminating duties between the motherland and dominions or colonies as against other nations, 
This has been of late the British practice. German colonies have always been open to every comer, including the motherland, on equal terms. Such equality of treatment should be the established practice for all the future. The only alternative to an open sea and free intercourse policy would be a Chinese wall around each country. If there is no free intercourse every country must become self-sufficient. Germany has proved that it can be done. But this policy would mean very high customs barriers, discrimination, and bounded egotism, and a world bristling in arms. While the free sea policy stands for the true aims of international relations, namely, in exchange of goods, which must benefit either party, to be mutually satisfactory, it will engender friendly feeling among all the peoples, advance civilization, and thereby have a sure tendency toward disarmament. For Germany has been taxed with disregarding treaty obligations, tearing up a scrap of paper a solemn engagement of international character regarding Belgium. I had the less reason to enter into this matter since if it was a breach of international law at all it has been followed up by all other belligerents by destroying other parts of that code so essential to the welfare of the community of nations. Two German men of war have been destroyed in neutral waters. The protests that the government of this country had to make against Great Britain's treatment of international sea law and the rights of the neutrals are too numerous to be recounted. Chinese neutrality has been violated in the grossest way. In disregard of all conventions, China is now being subjected to demands incompatible with the rights of self-respecting nations. Egypt and Cyprus have been annexed by Great Britain, disregarding all treaties. Germany's diplomatic representatives have been driven from China, Morocco, and Egypt all countries sovereign at the time. The Declaration of London, which had been set up by the government of the United States as the governing document, had to be dropped as such. There is practically no part of international law that could stand the test. Justice toward neutrals compels that international law should be re-established in a codified form, with sufficient guarantees so as to save, as far as possible, all the neutrals from possible implication in a war in which they do not take part. 5. Germany does not strive for territorial aggrandizement in Europe. She does not believe in conquering and subjugating unwilling nations this on account of a spirit of justice and her knowledge of history. No such attempts have ever been permanently successful. Belgium commands the main outlet of Western German trade, is the natural foreland of the empire, and has been conquered with a told sacrifice of blood and treasure. It offers to German trade the only outlet to an open sea and it has been politically established, maintained, and defended by England in order to keep these natural advantages from Germany. The love for small peoples that England heralds now will never stand investigation as shown by the destruction of the small Boer republics, so Belgium cannot be given up. However, these considerations could be disregarded if all the other German demands, especially a guaranteed free sea, were fully complied with and the natural commercial relationship of Belgium to Germany was considered in a just and workable form. In this case Germany will not fail when the times come to help in rebuilding the country, in fact, she is doing so now. 6. Germany is a country smaller in size than California but populated 35 times as thickly as that state. She loves and fosters family life, and sees her future in the raising of large families of healthy children under the home roof and under the national flag. German parents have no desire to expatriate every year a considerable number of their children. This implies that her industrial development, which would alone give occupation to the yearly increase of pretty nearly a million people, should go unhampered. The activity of her people should have an outlet in the development of such foreign parts as need or wish for development. 
Great Britain has shown very little foresight in constantly opposing such efforts, playing Morocco into the hands of France, a nation that remained stationary for 44 years, with little more than half of the population of Germany, and with a system equally undermining religion and morality in keeping families small for the sake of worldly comforts. England, furthermore, constantly obstructed the German endeavor to reclaim for the benefit of all of the world the granary in Mesopotamia. A permanent peace will mean that this German activity must get a wide scope without infringement upon the rights of others. Germany should be encouraged to continue her activities in Africa and Asia Minor, which can only result in permanent benefit to all the world. Americans had a saying that it will never do good to sit on a safety valve. There is nothing in the program of my country which would not be beneficial to the rest of the world, especially the United States. That this is so the events of the last months have conclusively shown and a better appreciation of what Germany really stands for has recently taken place. So, if I plead the cause of my country, I am not pleading as a German alone, but as a citizen of a country who wishes to be a full and true member of the universality of nations, contributing by humanitarian aims and by the enhancement of personal freedom to the happiness of even the lowliest members of the great world community. I am proud to say that I cannot only give this assurance, but produce facts. And I beg to refer to the modern system of social reforms which Germany inaugurated and carries through at an expense which is every year larger by half than the expense of the military system. The brunt of this war has not been borne by the men who fight, but by the women who suffer, and it will be one of the proudest and most coveted achievements that Germany will gain in rewarding in a dignified and permanently beneficial way the enormous sacrifices of womanhood to alleviate to the extent of the possible the hardships and sorrows that this war has brought upon them. The Allies' Conditions of Peace by Sir Edward Gray Sir Edward Gray, presiding at a lecture on the war by Mr. Buchan, delivered March 22, 1915, reviewed the origin and causes of the conflict. Germany, he said, refused every suggestion made to her for settling the dispute by means of a conference. On her must rest for all time the appalling responsibility for having plunged Europe into this war. One essential condition of peace must be the restoration to Belgium of her independence and reparation to her for the cruel wrong done to her. England claims for herself and her allies claim for themselves, and together will secure for Europe, the right of independent sovereignty for the different nations, the right to pursue a national existence in the light of general liberty. The occasion of our meeting this afternoon is to hear a lecture from my friend Mr. Buchan on the strategy of the war, and he is sure to make it informing and interesting. His friends know him as a man of fine public spirit and patriotism, in whom a crisis such as this in his country's history arouses the noblest feelings. I am sorry that an engagement makes it necessary for me to return soon to the foreign office, and therefore it will be a great disappointment to me not to hear the whole of the lecture. I take the opportunity to make my apology now, and also to make one or two remarks on the origin and issues of the war. While we are engaged in considering the particular methods by which the war may be prosecuted to a successful conclusion do not let us lose sight even for a moment of the character and origin of this war and of the main issues for which we are fighting. Hundreds of millions of money have been spent, hundreds of thousands of lives have been lost, and millions have been maimed and wounded in Europe during the last few months and all this might have been avoided by the simple method of a conference or a joint discussion between the powers concerned which might have been held in London, at the Hague, or wherever and in whatever form Germany would have consented to have it. It would have been far easier to have settled by conference the dispute between Austria-Hungary and Serbia, 
which Germany made the occasion for this war, than it was to get successfully through the Balkan crisis of two years ago. Germany knew from her experience of the conference in London which settled the Balkan crisis that she could count upon our goodwill for peace in any conference of the powers. We had sought no diplomatic triumph in the Balkan conference, we did not give ourselves to any intrigue, we pursued impartially and honorably the end of peace, and we were ready last July to do the same again. In recent years we have given Germany every assurance that no aggression upon her would receive any support from us. We withheld from her one thing we would not give an unconditional promise to stand aside, however aggressive Germany herself might be to her neighbors. Last July, before the outbreak of the war, France was ready to accept a conference, Italy was ready to accept a conference, Russia was ready to accept a conference, and we know now that after the British proposal for a conference was made, the Emperor of Russia himself proposed to the German Emperor that the dispute should be referred to the Hague. Germany refused every suggestion made to her for settling the dispute in this way. On her rests now, and must rest for all time, the appalling responsibility for having plunged Europe into this war and for having involved herself and the greater part of the continent in the consequences of it. We know now that the German government had prepared for war as only people who plan can prepare. This is the fourth time within living memory that Prussia had made war in Europe, in the Schleswig-Holstein War in the war against Austria in 1866, in the war against France in 1870. As we now know from all the documents that have been revealed, it was Prussia who planned and prepared these wars. The same thing has occurred again, and we are determined that it shall be the last time that war shall be made in this way. We had assured Belgium that never would we violate her neutrality so long as it was respected by others. I had given this pledge to Belgium long before the war. On the eve of the war we asked France and Germany to give the same pledge. France at once did so. Germany declined to give it. When, after that, Germany invaded Belgium we were bound to oppose Germany with all our strength. And if we had not done so at the first moment, is there anyone who now believes that when Germany attacked the Belgians, when she shot down combatants and non-combatants in a way that violated all the rules of war of recent times and the laws of humanity of all time is there anyone who thinks it possible now that we could have sat still and looked on without eternal disgrace? Now what is the issue for which we are fighting? In due time the terms of peace will be put forward by our allies in concert with us in accordance with the alliance that exists between us and published to the world. One essential condition must be the restoration to Belgium of her independence national life, and free possession of her territory, and reparation to her as far as reparation is possible for the cruel wrong done to her, that is part of the great issue for which we, with our allies, are contending, and the great part of the issue is this we wish the nations of Europe to be free to live their independent lives, working out their own form of government for themselves, and their own national developments, whether they be great nations or small states, in full liberty, this is our ideal. The German ideal we have had it poured out by German professors and publicists since the war began is that of the Germans as a superior people, to whom all things are lawful in the securing of their own power, against whom resistance of any sort is unlawful a people establishing a domination over the nations of the continent, imposing a peace which is not to be liberty for every nation, but subservience to Germany. I would rather perish or leave the continent altogether than live on it under such conditions. After this war we and the other nations of Europe must be free to live, not menaced continually by talk of supreme warlords, and shining armor, and the sword continually, rattled in the scabbard, 
and heaven continually invoked as the accomplice of Germany, and not having our policy dictated and our national destinies and activities controlled by the military caste of Prussia, we claim for ourselves and our lives claim for themselves, and together we will secure for Europe, the right of independent sovereignty for the different nations, the right to pursue a national existence, not in the shadow of Prussian hegemony and supremacy, but in the light of equal liberty, all honor forever be given from us whom age and circumstances have kept at home to those who had voluntarily come forward to risk their lives, and give their lives on the field of bad log land and on sea, they had their reward in enduring fame and honor, and all honor be from us to the brave armies and navies of our allies, who had exhibited such splendid courage and noble patriotism, the admiration they had aroused, and their comradeship in arms, will be an ennobling and enduring memory between us, cementing friendships and perpetuating national goodwill, for all of us who are serving the state at home or in whatever capacity, whether officials, or employers, or wage earners, doing our utmost to carry on the national life in this time of stress, there is the knowledge that there can be no nobler opportunity than that of serving one's country when its existence is at stake, and when the cause is just and right, and never was there a time in our national history when the crisis was so great and so imperative, or the cause more just and right. South Africa's romantic blue paper recording the vision of Unitos, the Boer Southeaster of Lichtenberg from the New York Times, April 18, 1915. The South African blue paper is out. It is unique. However widely and however eagerly the official documents of the other countries involved in the present war may have been read, they could not be called romantic in any sense of the word. The blue paper issued by the Union of South Africa presents a distinct contrast. In the third paragraph of the very first page of this weighty document, which deals with the recent rebellion, is the following unusual sentence, it is not surprising, then, that in the ferment aroused by the gigantic struggle in Europe, which seemed to be shaking the world to its foundations, young men began to see visions and old men to dream dreams of what the outcome might be for South Africa, and this is followed by a still stranger passage, the times were not without their signs, there was a southeaster in Lichtenberg who had visions of strange import, years ago and long before anyone in this country had dreamed of war he beheld a great fight of bulls, six or seven of them, engaged in bloody combat, a great bull had emerged victorious from the contest, the bull signified the great nations of Europe, and the great bull was Germany. Thousands had discussed this strange vision and had remembered its prophetic character when, later, war actually broke out. The vision seemed ominous. Germany was predestined to triumph. The southeaster is Nikos van Rensburg, and he runs through this government report like a scarlet thread through gray homespun. It is around his influence that the uprising of September 15th is built. It is under his roof that all manner of lurid conspiracies are hatched. Not only do his words carry with the crowds that gather before his house to hear his prophecy, but his warnings shape the actions of some of the Transvaal generals. The government report will not go so far as to brand Unitos as a hoax, says the preface. It is desired to point out that the narrative of events has been compiled in as objective a manner as possible, and that it contains no statement which is not borne out by evidence in possession of the government. Evidently, to denounce visions of gray bulls as hocus-pocus would be to describe a puzzling situation much too subjectively, since the government has apparently no evidence that these are not genuine prophecy. The best the government can do is to call them extraordinary and apparently quite authentic, but the extraordinary part of it is that an illiterate old soothsayer should be considered important enough to be included in an official report. 
his most famous and most influential prophecy, the one that will go down in the history of South Africa, was that which concerned General Delaray and the fatal number 15. The prophecy which came back to the minds of Van Rensburg's followers when war broke out was one concerning General Delaray, the intrepid soldier who had commanded the Lichtenberg Burgers in the Boer War and since become president of the Western Transvaal Farmers Association. Van Rensburg had always admired General Delaray. He had frequently hinted to his circle that great things were in store for him. One of his visions had been well known to General Delaray and his friends for some years. The report says, the Southeaster had beheld the number 15 on a dark cloud from which blood issued, and then General Delaray returning home without his hat. Immediately afterward came a carriage covered with flowers. Illustration, John Redmond the great Irish leader, who says that Ireland has now taken her proper place in the British Empire. Photo from P.S. Rogers. This was several years ago. But the people did not forget the prophecy. And when war broke out in Europe the Western Transvaal in the Lichtenberg Wolmaranstadt area, where Van Rensburg's influence was strongest was immediately aflame. The government does not seek to minimize the importance of this influence, when the war at last broke out. The effect in Lichtenberg W.